This is Sandy Boucher. Been a uh, uh, Vipassana practitioner for 28 years, a writer for maybe longer, um, and uh, uh, has just written a new book called uh, Dancing in the Dharma about her teacher, Ruth Dennison. And uh, I thought that we would have a conversation, uh, Sandy and I, just in general for a while about uh, things. How do you get a teacher, and how, what, how does a person become your teacher, and uh, what's a student's relationship to a teacher in the Vipassana tradition? It's different, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, you become somebody. It's all very disciple. formal. It's very yeah, formal. There's a way to do it. Yeah, and once you do it, it's it. For life, right. you know, that person is you. in Zen, too, And root guru. I, I think in Zen yeah. as well, but I think actually in the Tibetans, it's a root guru. You know how I know that um, uh, I went to an empowerment uh, with Kala Rinpoche uh, in, on the, in the Franklin Street Church in San Francisco in the early, maybe about 1990. He died not that long after. He was in his 90s. And... Uh, when you take an empowerment with a Tibetan teacher in a certain spirit, you become uh, that per he become that person becomes your root guru, and uh, you're not supposed to do. He, he, well, anyway, what he said was he said, "Don't worry about taking these vows with me, because vows with a guru only last as long as that person's life, and I'm going to die soon." <laughs> 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 so. <laughs> So, but we don't do that in the Vipassana tradition. We just kind of float around and study with different people. So, I thought you might tell people to begin with who you are. Like, I have your biography, and I could read it like they do on the radio in those programs. But it's never <laughs> nice when people, when you're sitting there and somebody says, Sylvia Borsi, Sandy Boucher, yeah. and you're sitting there, and you don't know what to do with yourself while somebody says, you, you wrote eight books, which you did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you tell about yourself your own version of your My biography. own version. <clears throat> well, um, uh, uh, maybe I'll start in the early 70s when I um, entered very passionately into the feminist movement, which used to be called Women's Liberation, and, um, and then into the anti-nuclear movement and was very, very politically active for all of, all of the 70s. And arrived at a place, um, always a writer, too, uh, since I was 12, actually. I'm from Ohio. I'm a Midwestern girl. I still feel that way, actually, mm -hmm. many years later. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, by the end of the 70s, I, I had pretty much burned out. I would, you know, you, uh, political activism, you're living very much out here. Everything's outer-directed. We had no idea of how to take care of ourselves um, spiritually, psychically, emotionally. We really didn't. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even know that you, you could or that you needed to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we just uh, sort of uh, <coughs> took everything to the limit. And a friend at that point said to me, um, let's go down to Tassajara. It's a Zen monastery, and let's stay there for a weekend. Well, if you've been to Tassajara, you know, it's kind of like going to heaven. Mm -hmm. I, I think it really is. The food is fabulous. You're served by these wonderful people. Um, you get to uh, swim in the nude in the stream, and then you sit in the zendo. So it was my first uh, uh, experience with sitting. And in a Soto Zen, you're sitting facing a white wall, 
and uh, at five in the morning, and I just felt wonderful. The depth of the silence that I encountered there mm -hmm. was uh, enormous. And I came home and started sitting in my living room looking at the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's strange to me when I think about it now, it never occurred to me to find a Zen center to sit in, mm -hmm. or, or a teacher. But then the same friend said, I have found a, a woman teacher, her name is Ruth Dennison, let's go down to the Mojave Desert and go to a retreat there. So we jump in, a, at that point it was always a group of people and it was usually um, a kind of broken down VW van. <laughs> Do you remember those days? <laughs> and we would start out and halfway down Route 5 it would always break down, you know, there'd be a flat tire or something would blow out and so we would always arrive about midnight. We were supposed to get there at 7. We'd arrive at midnight. And there was Ruth Dennison, who was a very extraordinary German-born woman. Um, <coughs> and my first experience was a week, a week long. Mm -hmm. I'd never sat a retreat. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything. Sat for a week <coughs> in the desert. It's the high desert outside Joshua Tree. Uh, a very austere environment, and believe me, a very austere teacher at that time, mm -hmm. and very tough. And I really like, oh, what is going on here? I, would, I was so frustrated, I would go out and run in the desert and jump over the sage bushes and scream out there where nobody could hear me. <laughs> but I did, um, <clears throat> I, did, I did get it. I got it. And I got what Ruth had to offer. And what it was, was and still is, because she's still teaching. She's 83. She's still down there teaching in the desert. And here, hmm. sometimes. What it was, was a, a profound uh, connection to the body, to the sensations of the body. The first foundation of <coughs> mindfulness. She is a genius at teaching. And for me, that was so powerful that um, she became my teacher and I stayed hmm. with her. Mm -hmm. um, but what that meant was it didn't mean um, that I took her as a guru or anything of the kind. In fact, I was very leery of her <coughs> because she's quite eccentric and challenging and mercurial and all these things. And so I, I kind of had a, you know, arm's length, but I would go down there and be there and, uh, and get the teachings from her. This was early 80s. I, I went in 1980. Then I started looking around and saying, hmm, finding out more about what is Buddhism, because I was interested in that. Not everybody is. Some people just want the, the teachings. I wanted to know what Buddhism was. And I discovered that it was a very male supremacist religion. Like, oh. <laughs> so, um, being that Francis is laughing because he's a minister and he's a oh. man, <laughs> so he knows about male supremacist right. religions. <laughs> and uh, like all the other world religions, need I say? <laughs> That's what he's laughing about. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought because I really was in, engaged. So what do I do with this mm -hmm. as a feminist? What am I going to do with this? And. Um, it's always been the case as a writer that if I'm truly interested in something, then I want to write about it. So I thought, well, what I really want to know also is what do all these other women who are practicing Buddhism, um, what do they think about this? What are they, the teachers who are coming up, the, the people who are living in these, in these Buddhist communities, Zen communities and, and Tibetan communities and, and so forth, the Vipassana communities, who, the mothers who are 
are doing Buddhist practice and trying to take care of their children at the same time, which in a Zen center at that time was very difficult. <laughs> so um, I traveled all over the United States and interviewed a hundred women in all these different settings and um, met some wonderful, that's when I met Pema Chodron. Mm -hmm. and also there were um, some, some early um, conferences, women in Buddhism conferences. The first was in, at uh, uh, Vajradhatu in Boulder. Judah Simmer Brown mm -hmm. set that up in <coughs> 81 or so. So I was finding out about all of this and came home and uh, wrote a book called Turning the Wheel, which is an overview of what everybody thought about what they were doing. Uh, I remember reading it when I was teaching in, in, at uh, Naropa. I was, did you? I was teaching a workshop and I go to that back room and read some more. <laughs> <and go back. laughs> <coughs> and, um, so it was kind of a, a, a big compendium of women's voices talking about their spiritual path in Buddhism. Uh, there was also at that time uh, the issue of um, sexual abuse by certain male teachers, and I, I really um, f thought I needed to, um, I knew that I needed to write about it, but I had to uh, go through a lot in order to do that. First of all, it was very painful to write about because these are very, very painful stories. They were, they still are, it still happens. Uh, and then there were people who, at least one student of one of the teachers who came to see me and tried to talk me out of <coughs> doing it too. Mm. And I remember, uh, uh, actually I stayed up all night and searched my soul and finally decided, no, I have to, have to write about this. So there's that one chapter in there. Mm. Um, at, down at Ruth Dennison's, uh, I met another German-born woman named Ayakema. You may have heard of her. Uh, Lee Brasington teaches her jhana practice mm -hmm. here and there. And uh, she was doing something very interesting, which was she was setting up a, uh, a nunnery in Sri Lanka. She had been given an island by the Sri Lankan government. They said, here's an island. Uh, in this lake, it's a lake, a, Ra a Ratgama lake, <coughs> in southern Sri Lanka. You know, you probably know the name Gaul now because of the tsunami. Gaul was one of the towns that was hit pretty badly. Uh, but it, it, there's a little lake, and in the lake is an island with a monastery on it. So the Sri Lankans liked Ayakema very much, mm -hmm. and they said, "Why don't you put a nunnery on this one?" Mm -hmm. So she set about creating a nunnery, mm -hmm. and uh, she wanted it to be for Western women. So um, I, I decided, oh, that's very interesting. I, I could have an experience of being in robes. So I made my way. I actually had a little inheritance from a death in the family, and I took that money, and I got myself to uh, Sri Lanka and li did the rains retreat, <coughs> which is six weeks. Six weeks or more. Three months. Three, three months, yes, months. three months of um, living as a, uh, uh, wearing the robes and doing a monastic practice, which was uh, very interesting. And Ayakima was a wonderful teacher. Her, her forte was uh, expounding the Dharma. Mm -hmm. she, um, she really could give a beautiful Dharma talk. She, and she, it seemed as if she had memorized all of the suttas. She never, she never referred to them. She would quote <laughs> at length from them. And, and, uh, and talk with, with great clarity <coughs> about um, all of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm focusing here on teachers. So uh, then <coughs> uh, I, 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 
In my travels for Turning the Wheel, I met Maureen Stewart Roshi, a Zen teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which maybe you've heard of. And Maureen was a, a marvelous, I loved her for her big Zen presence, you know that Zen presence. She said, um, <coughs> whatever comes, good or bad, don't make a move to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> Which it seems to me is the definition of Zen, of Buddhism, is it not? <laughs> One definition. In a Zen tone of voice. In a Zen tone, tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> she, but I would say the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, the Tibetans would say that. That's they a would Tibetan say that. Tone <laughs> what would the Theravada say? We would say um, <clears throat> uh, real mi true mindfulness is the ability to s uh, stay present for any moment uh, with a mind uh, with a mind that greets it with uh, 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 equanimity. Uh, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it would be the well, with a non-coercive, um, with a non -co with a mind that's non-coercive, and uh, what I'm trying to find a word that with a that uh, non-coercive and um, non-judgmental, something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. something like that. But I like to do Maureen Stewart again. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever comes, good or bad, don't make a move to avoid it. <laughs> I wrote that down. She, she said this, actually she said it at one of those women's conferences. You know, there she is in her robes and her brocade, um, uh, what, what's the word for it? Anyway, uh, she stood Roxy. up there like, Roxu, and she stood up there like this and said that. That's really all she's had to say to me. I, I wrote it down, I hung it above my desk, I looked at it every day, and it actually served me well later in my life. Mm -hmm. But she was also an artist, she was a concert pianist. She had been a concert pianist before she became a wife and mother and then a Zen master. And um, <coughs> I loved that about her, and uh, she invited me to her house and played the piano for me, and I also loved that. And she, unfortunately, has died of cancer. So did Ayakima. Mm -hmm. Both of these are gone now. These are the pioneers. These are the people who really uh, brought it back then. And, you know. And now, um, oh, then I, 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 was, I, I, I was thinking about what kind of book would I have wanted to read when I first, that first retreat when I sat with Ruth. Mm -hmm. And Ruth isn't very bookish, so mm -hmm. she didn't suggest anything. And I knew what is Buddha. You know what is Buddhism? I have no idea. All I see is Ruth there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so I wrote a book called Opening the Lotus, which is uh, a primer uh, about Buddhism, and uh, which also uh, tries to deal with women's issues, the the kinds of things that kinds of questions that only women ask about, you know, um, difficulties with the whole compassion teachings and mm -hmm. things of that kind. Um, and then um, Kuan Yin happened to me. I, I was never a goddess person, but she, she entered my life. She just came in and uh, kind of took me by the back of the neck and pushed me forward. And, and so I began to learn about Kuan Yin. You'd like to elaborate about whether that happened in a dream or what do you oh, think yes. came through the, through the door? Or <laughs> <laughs> Yen came in and sort of <laughs> Well, no, I was in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> I want to go there. Yes, Wait, you must go. You must go. Plan. We have a pilgrimage. Let's lead a pilgrimage. I, I have been talking about that Shall for we? years. 
I want to go it. there and say, okay. Okay. All right. So I was in Kansas City. <laughs> I've been one in the Nelson Gallery. Yeah, yeah. Nelson Atkins Museum. Nelson Atkins Gallery. Yes. Oh, yeah, Shoshana is from there, actually. And I grew up with her. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so when forward. She was in storage in the, in the 50s. That, that was, our was she? Yeah, that was our performing home, the, the dance and ballet company oh. that I studied with. And this in the 50s, all the art galleries weren't open on the weekends and things were very different. Well, we had free run of the gallery. And one day as a 10-year-old, I was wandering around and I happened down this long corridor. And some of you have heard this story before. And then I come to this incredible statue. I had no idea who she was. But I had an intimate relationship with her for two years. I sat on her lap. <laughs> Did you literally? Literally, would climb up. But nobody else was around, no presumably. Was around. No guards. And then one of the guards <laughs> one time, you know, went with me and told me about all the jewels that used to be, you know, ah. in her. And, and, I, and I said, oh, I don't know, you know, what this is. I said, I just love this. And, and I would dance for her and bow to her. And, just, <laughs> oh, and, and I told the guard, I said, oh, sometimes when between rehearsals, I bring my lunch in and I climb up on her lap. And he said, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to be involved in putting, helping with the pilgrimage. Well, all right, let's go. Who well, wants to go to Kansas City? City. <laughs> <laughs> I know all the best places. Right in that area. All right. Well, seriously, let's, let's talk. Do I've it. always let's wanted talk. to go. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. We let's have go. to get special permission, though, to sit there like early in the morning before they open the museum. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe on the, is there a day it's closed? Maybe we could well, we can, do a retreat. Um, I'd love to help. And I actually All started right. a communication with them a couple of years ago. So maybe we can talk about All right. Let's do it. So that's how Okay. okay Returning go. to the story. I had essentially the same. I wasn't 10 years old, but I had essentially the same experience. Like, <laughs> <laughs> then in 1995, what is it? Oh, Kuan Yin is. Well, I, Kuan Yin, I know, but the one in Kansas City. What, there, there's. Uh, in fact, these little statues yeah. of Kuan Yin sitting like this. This one. This oh, is yeah. the Kuan Yin. This is the one. This, <laughs> this is, is the Kuan Yin posture. We have our are made from those. Yeah. And there's a poster of her. It's a. She's a beautiful, oh, uh, a little bit larger than life, 12th or 13th century wooden statue, mm. beautifully painted of mm. Kuan Yin. Does anyone here not know who Kuan Yin is? Kuan Yin is the, is the preeminent goddess in all of Asia. She's in every Asian country with different names in every country. She basically comes from Chinese, China. She's well, over she's here. Not sitting, she's not this one. In that posture. Yeah. She is also in the Buddhist tradition the Bodhisattva of compassion. And a Bodhisattva is a person who is practicing to achieve full liberation but who comes back into the world over and over, lifetime after lifetime, in order to awaken other beings and alleviate suffering. So she's the embodiment of compassion in the world mm. and very beautifully uh, depicted. In many ways. That, in that many ways. That particular uh, uh, posture of royal ease is it's really royal, royal, ease, yes. royal ease is my favorite. But also <laughs> there are renditions where her hands are out and she's got actually a thousand hands mm -hmm. in order to be able to rush out and come to the aid of everybody. It's, it's, it's magnificent. Huh. Yeah. Right, so continue yeah. on. All right. So um, it was 19... I, I have a book about Kuan Yin. It's called <laughs> Discovering Kuan Yin, which is really about how she's arriving into, our, into Western, into Western culture. Um, 
But uh, I, in 1995, I went to uh, the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women in, in Beijing. And before I went, I thought, ah, oh, China, ah, oh, Kuan Yin, Guan Xiyin. Kuan Yin is from China. So I, I thought, well, if I'm going to go to China, I've got to find Kuan Yin. And even though, you know, there are many decades of communist rule there and, and uh, religion was outlawed, still I knew Kuan Yin would be there. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that there's an island in the South China Sea off Shanghai that's dedicated to Kuan Yin. It's called Putoshan. And for many hundreds of years, it has been a pilgrimage place for people to come and, and um, uh, commune with Kuan Yin. And it still is. Mm -hmm. But there, there used to be 500 uh, temples on this uh, tiny island. And the Red Guards during the Revolution went over there, and it was their favorite pastime was to destroy these things. So there's only five of them left, and a monastery and a nunnery. And a Chinese-American friend and I went to Putoshan and spent six days there and had a, uh, a very deep um, uh, understanding and perception and awareness of that Kuan Yin's compassionate energy. Came back from there and was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, which is pretty bad, and told that in a week I'd have to have major surgery. And uh, so I, I would go walking in the graveyard, it was near me, and, and I found myself talking to Kuan Yin, which was sort of amazing. I'm not the type to be, I'm not a very mystical type. I don't speak to goddesses normally. But I, I was talking to Kuan Yin and I was saying, help me, help me. And of course, what I wanted to happen was that, uh, you know, this beautiful Asian woman in flowing robes would appear in the branches of a venerable tree and gaze down compassionately at me and maybe come down and walk with me, help me out. Um, unfortunately, she didn't appear in that way, but my prayer was answered, and it was answered uh, uh, very deeply from myself. I had a, I had a deep sense of of this compassionate energy in myself, that Kuan Yin resided here. That she wasn't something added on, she wasn't something out there, she was truly here. And then that carried me forward and was very helpful in, um, in uh, dealing with cancer. Um, major surgery and 25 weeks of chemotherapy. So, but here I am, made it through. And I want to mention uh, Jennifer Berzan, who this uh, Sunday evening is going to be playing music in, up in the upper hall. And one of the things she will probably be playing is a long chant to Kuan Yin. It's called, She Who Hears the Cries of the World. Uh, that's, another, that's a translation of Kuan Yin's name, Guan Qi Yin means in Chinese, She Who Hears the Cries of the World. And Jennifer uh, was creating that chant when I was about to go in for the surgery and brought me a little tape of it. Mm. And that chant carried me, it's a 23 minute chant to Kuan Yin, to the Virgin Mary, to the goddess, to everybody she, she you know, relates to. And um, I would play it every morning. Uh, uh, in, and when those 23 minutes were done, particularly during the chemotherapy period, <laughs> which was very difficult. Anybody who's experienced chemotherapy knows how hard it is, how sick you are. And um, after listening to this chant for 23 minutes, I could do my day. So I recommend it. I, I hope it's in, in the, it's all CDs now, I hope it's in there. 
but I hope you will, um, yeah, if you can make it Sunday night to Jennifer's concert in the upper hall, do so. It's, it's very beautiful, deep uh, spiritual music that she creates. So then I, um, since I always wind up writing about everything, I had to write about the cancer period. It took four years. I had to wait four years after the experience. And um, so then, and then I had to re-enter the experience, which had been uh, uh, complicated. I had no health insurance at the time, so I wound up at Highland Hospital in Oakland, which is the charity hospital. And uh, so it was very chaotic, overcrowded, very interesting environment, and and uh, harrowing. And I think you get excellent care. Mm. So uh, I, I wrote. I wrote. A, I wanted to write about. Well, actually, when I was diagnosed, when I understood what was coming at me, uh, I thought about Maureen Stewart, whatever co comes, good or bad, mm -hmm. don't make a move to avoid it. I said, okay, I'm not going to make a move to avoid this, and I'm going to see. I've been doing uh, a Buddhist practice, Vipassana practice, uh, Buddhist practice for 15 years. I'm going to take this training that I have now, and I'm going to consciously apply it to uh, this emergency. So I did that as best I could and um, stayed with the body, stayed with what was going on, didn't project into the future, didn't go into the best I could, not going into fears and so <coughs> forth. Sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't. Um, but anyway, so I wrote a book called Hidden Spring, um, which comes from a, a Zen death poem, and In the Heart of the Fire Lies a Hidden Spring. And it's about that uh, attempt to take these teachings that we are practicing here uh, with Sylvia into, into the, those settings, which were very, very trying and difficult. Um, it was extremely painful to write because I had to re-enter the experience. But it was also very healing to write, too, mm -hmm. because um, I don't know, I'm driving out here, I turned on the radio and someone was talking about sometimes the caregivers have a harder time with people with cancer than people th the people who have cancer. Because the person who has cancer, at some point in this journey, becomes a warrior and says, I pick up the sword, I meet each moment, uh, is how cancer patients usually do. And so you're so busy doing that that all the sorrow, all the loss, all of that hasn't been fully felt. Mm. So when I uh, started writing this book, then I had to enter there. I had to go back into. And since I wasn't in the experience, I had to enter the experience again, but with the emotions that came about. So um, that's a book called Hidden Spring, um, which unfortunately your bookstore doesn't have. And I think it's not their fault. It was published by Wisdom Publications. They don't, they don't distribute very well. But I think I'll call them up. I do have one copy for people to look at if you want to. Um, so I got well. And, uh, and, and then um, in 1999, I, I think that's when I published the book about Kuan Yin. I did the book about Kuan Yin. And uh, I guess Hidden, um, Hidden Spring was 2000. And then uh, students of Ruth Dennison began to apply a little pressure. Mm -hmm. They're saying, oh, she's getting old. You know, she might die. Uh, someone should write a biography of her. She's a pioneer. She's, 
you know, uh, people should know about her. She's been so important to women as a role model. And also, Ruth Dennison was the first teacher to lead an all-women's retreat, which um, is sort of amazing, isn't it? We, we think nothing of it now. All the Buddhist centers have them. But in 1979, uh, 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 this had never been done. Mm -hmm. And she did it and continues to do it at her center. Um, <coughs> she also was a, is a, a great innovator. She used movement and dance to teach mindfulness, which also had never been done and got her into a lot of hot water. Mm -hmm. And now lots of people do that. Mm -hmm. Most uh, uh, retreats, there's some kind of yoga element or movement element. Um, so people, be, her, her, her serious students started coming to me saying, you are the one, you're the one who <laughs> has to do this. And I um, really didn't want to do it. It's, it just seems so difficult. Imagine writing a, you're a Sylvia student, imagine writing a book about Sylvia and she's alive. She's going <laughs> to see it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you tell the truth? And somehow, oh, <laughs> I just thought, and, and this, is a, this is not an easy teacher, Ruth, and she's, you know, uh, complex and contradictory sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. So I kept saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm busy with other things. And then I went to a, one of the retreats, and Ruth called me in after the final session and said, I would like to ask something of you. And I said, what? And she said, I would like you to write my biography. Mm -hmm. So there it was. <laughs> so shall I say some more about that process, or shall we move to some until we go to the No, book. Yeah, I, th I think you're on a roll. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so then, I, uh, so then I, I, I said yes, but I said, you know, before I do it, we, we have to have a talk. We really have to have a talk about how I'm going to do it. Because this is not going to be hagiography, which is a word that means the lives of the saints. <laughs> I do not think of Ruth as a saint, and... Um, and I certainly wasn't going to do a completely, utterly positive, adulatory <laughs> portrait of her. That's, that wasn't possible for me, because I didn't feel that way about her. And I was either, it wouldn't have been worth it to write a, that book to do that. So I, I went down to the desert and um, went and sat with Ruth knee to knee and said, you know, I will do this, but I have to d write the book that I can write. And I'm going to tell the truth about you. I'm going to deliver as best I can the complexity of your personality, and that includes the negative dimensions as well as the positive. And so I, you, I want you to know that, and, and you have to say yes to that before I go ahead. You know, and I didn't want to write a whole book and then ever say mm -hmm. no. <clears throat> and she's, and she, uh, you know, she understood. She truly respected that. I think she did because she is... Um, uh, She's, ma she's quite embarrassed, really, by adulation sometimes, and I think it makes her uncomfortable, and mm -hmm. she recognizes that it's, it's not authentic, and, and, and so this made more sense to her. This was, this was very frontal. It was very, this is what I'm going to do, take it or not, and she said, okay, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> my editor at Beacon uh, said, here's, what, here's the way I think it will be of more use to people than just a biography of Ruth Dennison, is if you have also an examination of what is it to work with the same teacher over 25 years. How does one do that? How does one hang in when the 
when the sheen is off, when suddenly it's a real person with real, really difficult traits and strengths and weaknesses and all of that. What do you do then? Well, some people move on to the next teacher, and that's certainly a legitimate thing to do. But uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe I'm a little slow or something. I, s <laughs> I never moved on. I, would, I did go and sit with other people and certainly think of Aya Kaman, Maureen Stewart, and Pema Chodron as my mm -hmm. teacher. But, but Ruth was the root teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and she had earned that with her teaching. Uh, there was no ceremony, there, nothing. It was just she had earned that. I, uh, she was my teacher. So I, um, <coughs> I began interviewing Ruth in depth. And if you've ever sat with Ruth, you know she's famous for her stories. Mm -hmm. So I got to hear all the stories in great detail. We'd sit for hours and hours and hours with all the stories. Um, with her uh, a background in Germany, uh, she was born in 1922 in Germany. That was the Weimar Republic. Uh, you know, 30, uh, 30, was it 30, um, Hitler came in, 33, uh, the war started, these dates, and the Third Reich, and the Nazis, and all of that. <coughs> so, first thing I had to do was go read 100 books about mm -hmm. this period, and uh, find out what was this context in which, in which Ruth was operating, <coughs> growing up, growing up. And then I spent many, many, many hours interviewing Ruth about this childhood and young adulthood in Nazi Germany. Her father was a Nazi. Uh, Ruth was in the Hitler Youth. And this, these were hard facts for me. And um, so again, it was the, I went back to the reading. I read lots of books about uh, German, well, the few that there are about German women during that time. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, discovered that, in fact, if you were not one of the, uh, of the uh, persecuted, persecuted groups, of which there were a number, um, you probably were in the Hitler Youth. You probably did join. And if you didn't join, your father was probably called in to his boss's office and told that he would lose his job if you didn't join. So, <clears throat> But she actually uh, was rather enthusiastic about it. Uh, then, you know, the end of the war, she had, she, after the war, the Russians came across the border. She was in East Prussia, uh, and uh, everybody ran. The German army was retreating across the border. The Russian army was pushing them, and they pushed the civilians toward Berlin. Uh, uh, terrible times. Uh, teaching school, I thought, wasn't Teaching she? school. Yeah. She was a school teacher. Yeah, that's what I thought. She started early being a teacher. See, because I, I, I thought about that because of her teaching technique, and when it seemed like too... <clears throat> I think to myself, she's a Prussian school teacher. Yes, you know, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's who she was. Yeah. And when she started teaching, <coughs> um, all the all the male teachers had to leave and go in the German army. Mm -hmm. And so she was teaching like forty five oh. students, some of mm -hmm. whom were bigger than she was. Mm -hmm. So you know, she was mm -hmm. tough. <laughs> and uh, but then after the war, um, she went back into East Prussia, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now Poland. And trying to find um, some relatives who had been lost uh, with no idea of what she was doing, I think. It was a very bodhisattva action, but also very foolish. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> there followed a year and a half in which she was trapped over there and, and had some horrible experiences, gang rape, and uh, uh, she was in a concentration camp. She had terrible diseases that she almost died from, uh, sexual slavery. Uh, awful, awful things happened to her. 
and she somehow survived. So I was very interested in how do you survive these things? You know, I think about it myself. I'm not sure I could have. Mm -hmm. You know, I would imagine curling up in the corner and saying, that's it. Mm -hmm. This is too much. I'm going to die. And she talked about having an inward state of mind, somehow being able to hold that. And then um, uh, uh, also that a lot of her suffering was suffering with others and how that, that lightens it mm -hmm. for you. And then she had a sort of a vision, if I survive, I'm going to dedicate my life to helping other people. But she had another perspective, too, which was very helpful. <clears throat> I, would, I would say to her, how did you survive the rapes? How could you, how could you be in that and still be as you know, engaged with your body as you are now? And she said, I understood that I was a member of a group that had done wrong to many groups in the world and many countries, to Poland, to France, to the Jews, to the communists, to the other groups, uh, all of this we had done, and now they were doing it to us. And this is, she didn't say karma, but it was an understanding of the, their, their collective karma as Germans. And I think that that uh, protected her in a certain way because it, yeah. she didn't take it in, inside and make it personal, which many people do. She talked, and she didn't become bitter and angry. She talked about the people who, who became bitter, who, who were uh, uh, outraged at what was being done by the Russian soldiers who were essentially doing what the Germans had done to them, to the Germans. Uh, and those people didn't survive. They, sometimes they literally died, sometimes they went crazy and were institutionalized. And Ruth wanted to survive and she looked around and said, I'm not going there. No, um, no bitterness. Then she had the great good fortune to come to this country. Uh, I think she was in her 30s. Mm -hmm. And she had nothing, so she wound up living in a garage and cleaning someone's house in Holly, down in Los Angeles, and met a gentleman named Henry Dennison, who was an heir to the Santa Fe Railroad, a very wealthy man. He was also a tall, handsome, and very spiritual guy. He had been a Vedanta monk for seven years before Ruth met him. <coughs> and he was what she called a nature man. He, uh, he loved the outdoors, he loved gardening, and he was perfect for her. So she, um, her life changed radically. Suddenly she's living in a house in the, in the Hollywood Hills, just above the Hollywood Reservoir. Have you ever been there? Gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful house. And, and um, had a whole different life. Then Henry was part of what, what used to be called the counterculture. Some of us remember that. And, and so his living room <coughs> became the place that people like Alan Watts taught there. They were very good friends with Alan Watts, Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley, Aldous Huxley, Sheen Mayananda, Krishnamurti, uh, Lama Govinda, all came through and taught in Henry's living room. And Ruth was there with all these teachings. Um, then, um, but you know, Ruth, being Ruth, <laughs> Uh, of course she was listening, but nothing was gripping her particularly. And she was, she was cooking the food, plumping the pillows, and making sure everybody was comfortable, because that's kind of, Ruth is there with the, the moment, the tasks. And then, uh, and then somebody showed up, um, Charlotte Selber. Uh, Charlotte Selber, who just died a few years ago, another German woman, uh, who created... At 104. At 104 she died. Yeah. And I actually did a, a 
a training with her at Green Gulch like a year, the year before. At 103, she was still teaching. Yeah. <laughs> she um, created a system called sensory awareness. And Alan Watts uh, discovered her. She was teaching in New York. And he said, Charlotte does what I talk about. She knows how to teach people to do what I'm talking about. So, um, and her first seminar in California was in Henry and Ruth's living room. And Ruth, now this teacher she got, she started listening to Charlotte Selvey and was like, oh, I get this, I get it. The body, mindfulness of the body. And she went right there and, and had a profound uh, experience with Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And then they, um, they, they used to uh, travel around the world every three years or so, and they didn't just bop through. You know, they'd spend a year in, in Japan with Yasutani Roshi and Yamada Roshi sitting in a Zen monastery. Then they'd go to the Himalayas and they would study with Lama Govinda for a year or two years. <coughs> then they'd bring them back to this country. But, so he took her to Burma and they wound up with a teacher named Ubakin. And that became in, in uh, um, uh, Rangoon. Mm -hmm. And that became Ruth's teacher then. This was Vipassana. He was a layman. He had been a monk, but he was a layman. He was a member of the uh, uh, government in Burma, very practical guy, very much uh, in the world, and he taught Vipassana. And um, she was there with Henry. Henry was a great seeker, and Henry had gone there in order to get enlightened. That's what he did. He went everywhere, and he was, this, with this teacher, I'm going to get it. And so he was going to get it from Ubakin. And since he was so tall, distinguished, and educated and all of that, Ubakin kind of thought that he would too. She thought, Ubakin thought, oh, well, Henry's probably the one who's going to get it. And Ruth was like the little Cinderella in the back of the room. Not only was she in the back of the room, but she was resisting. She didn't want to be there um, because Henry had been a monk and she was afraid he would take robes again. They weren't married yet, so. She felt a little shaky. Uh, and uh, she also thought that what Uba Kin was teaching, mindfulness of the body, uh, Ruth has her arrogant edge. And she thought, I already know this. I already did this with Charlotte Selber. I know this. So why do I need to pay attention to him? So um, Henry was basically wandering around uh, discussing things with people rather than practicing. Ruth was hardly practicing because she was resisting. And then at a certain point, she decided, oh, I think uh, maybe this man has something to teach me. I think I'll start paying attention. I'll start doing what he says to do. She started to do it, and she immediately began to move forward in her practice. She would report to him the experiences she'd had in meditation. He'd give her the next task. She'd take it farther. She had uh, uh, some visions, which he interpreted for her. She went farther. And by the end of two months, um, he officially acknowledged that Ruth had, had reached the first level of enlightenment, Sotipana. Uh, poor Henry, it was a <laughs> big, <laughs> it was a big blow, it was a big blow, a cause of much conflict in the relationship from then on. <laughs> Though this marriage lasted 42 years, and uh, Ruth recently saw Henry through his dying, so. It's not as if they went off in other directions, but they, they had a scratchy 
relationship. So that was first. And then from then on, wherever Ruth was sitting and practicing, and they practiced, as I said, all over the world with the major teachers of the 20th century, she was always really doing Vipassana because she knew this is my practice, this is my teacher. She kept deepening, 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 deepening. And uh, she also, they also spent time with Timothy Leary um, in, in his place in New York and experimented with acid. And she worked particularly with the people who were um, having bad trips, including Leary's children. And, mm -hmm. and Ruth uh, learned how, at that point, using her Vipassana training, to learn how to bring people back from a dissociated state. Mm -hmm. she would, for instance, she took Timothy Leary's daughter, who was completely out there, and put her in a bathtub with warm water and moved the water around and touched her shoulder and touched her arm and gradually brought her back to connection with body. She's been known for that with lots of people over the years. Yes. If they had a reunion of people that Ruth has rescued from rescued. the edge right. by taking them back to Damadina and really mothering them back into health, there would be a very big community there. And some of them, uh, teachers and leaders in the Buddhist tradition around this world. Yes, country. right. So, uh, <laughs> uh, formidable. She, yeah. just, she has endless heart in that way. That's right. That's right. And even now, um, uh, she is the only meditation Buddhist teacher I know who, who really allows someone who is seriously dissociated and has serious mental problems to come and be there at her center. And she works individually with these people. So if you go to a retreat at Ruth, sometimes there's one person who may not be taking part in the retreat, but you can see Ruth working with someone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, over sometimes months and even years, they live there and she works with them and brings them back. Excuse me? She's 83. She's 83, but we had the, this exchange a couple of years ago. Five years ago, we were, um, there was a conference in, uh, England, the opening, the opening of the new uh, meditation hall at Amaravati, and many people had gone there. There was a, a Vipassana teachers' conference, and then we had to take the the bus from the teachers' conference in Devon to, to London to Amaravati. And on that bus, I had my camera with me, so I took, I just stood, I stood up and I took pictures of people randomly around the bus. And I came home, I printed the pictures, and I sent the pictures with Ruth in them to Ruth, and then. I sent everybody pictures, and from Ruth came a thank you, written on clearly an old-fashioned typewriter. You know, you can yes. tell when it's typed out, you know. A real typewriter. Yeah. yeah. So it's a typed out, and it said, thank you very much for the pictures, and I really appreciate having them. Someday, uh, when I'm old, I'm really going to enjoy looking at things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt so good about that. You know? <laughs> This was two years ago? <laughs> a couple of years ago. <laughs> in the meantime, she flew into Devon. She flew into Gaia House because she, a little bit, a couple of days late because she had a teaching engagement somewhere before, and then she took the red eye from here to there. She's indefatigable. I know, indefatigable. I know, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Can I just share a quick story? Yeah. I was talking with her a couple of days ago on the telephone. Mm -hmm. I mean, the woman's spirit is just amazing. And she was calling about Ball in the Hall, which is August 20th. She is so excited <laughs> about this ball. Oh. So everyone's going to be dressed up. <laughs> so we're going to be dancing <laughs> in the hall. And she's just, she's so excited. She can hardly contain herself from the phone <laughs> That's a very great, this is Sandra Franco, by the way, who's our development director here. And, um, <laughs> 
in charge of this big birthday celebration for Jack, which is going to be an amazing event that we think, that we hope. But that sounds very much like Ruth, you know, that uh, indomitable spirit. Mm. Yeah. So what would you like? That, what, oh, you have any? Run out of time, what yeah. would you like to ask? Francis. Uh, question a friend of mine observed that over the centuries in Japan, the, kind of the masculine nature of the samurai consciousness has translated into a kind of fierce Zen attitude. Could you reflect on that? Because I've never heard that Japanese masculine samurai consciousness impacting Zen. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh is Zen, but it's certainly nowhere near that Japanese spirit. Yes, well, had you gone to the, the San Francisco Zen Center in 1960, you would have experienced it. Had you gone to any Zen center, any Japanese Zen center in the United States, <coughs> Kaplo Roshi in, where was he, in upstate New York, all this, ca uh, combat boot Zen, it's called. It's just <laughs> Rochester, I think. Yeah, Rochester. Rochester. It, yeah, it was, it was very present here. Thich Nhat Hanh's another matter. But uh, yeah, it was very much here. And Zen. It was about young men, um, physically fit young men, testing themselves to the edge. That's what Zen practice was about, it's to some extent. How do women practice Zen that comes out of a Japanese culture without getting smashed? Well, yeah, you, you just have to read Turning the Wheel and you'll hear them talking about how they <laughs> tried to do it. They did get smashed and, uh, and they did struggle very hard and what they have managed to do is alter the nature of what goes on in Zen centers and uh, the structure there, which was strictly hierarchical, it was now very, very horizontal. Uh, the the abbess, uh, the abbot of uh, Green Gulch Farm is a woman. They, uh, uh, San Francisco Zen Center, the abbot was a woman for many years. So the, in the last, um, uh, what would we say, 30 years, so much has changed. But mm -hmm. that was, that's what was brought over here, yeah. I Fifth think thing. actually what, is, what has changed from it, I think at some point it actually had this kind of mm, spirit. And now it's turned into, as, a, as I understand it, an appreciation of discipline, mm -hmm. and a really mm -hmm. a, 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 an appreciation of discipline as as a style of practice. That if someone says to me, "I practice Zen," I sit up a little straight. Then, <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Uh, but the, but uh, but in the sense that if you sit in a certain way, it keeps you awake, and your mind is more likely to be awake. Not in the sense of I am now fixing my mind so I can do anything without having it touch my conscience, which is what a lot of uh, fighter pilots learned to use it for in, during the Second World War. It has some unfortunate link with kamikaze <coughs> training and uh, along the way with, I think, Yasutani Roshi, part of that story. Yes. Yes. So it, it, in fact, has some very bad moments in the history of Zen if we're going to tell the truth about everything. But I think as it has lived, Blanche Hartman, <coughs> As, you know, Linda Ruth Cuts. Yeah, Blanche is a little older than I am. But you know, and she's been the abbot of Zen senses. And she's very clear about internal discipline in, in keeping the mind clear and uh, um, not being open, uh, being able to see clearly, but not in, not in, mm, not none of that. Yeah. Um, this is just a, a question and an observation about this whole question of how Zen came from Japan and what has been transmuted. One of the impressions I have is that that quality of inner discipline in many Zen practitioners has been transmuted into social action. 
Mm. And I'm thinking of the rigor of Mayumi Oda's work and Katahashi's work and mm. many uh, people whose who root, root teachers were in that tradition. Mm -hmm. And in the Americanization, it seems as if it is, has that energy then has channeled <coughs> into social activism. Well, Sandy's an editor of The Turning Wheel, which is the uh, journal of the Buddhist Peace and, uh, Fellowship. Yeah. And, and I was thinking many of the Buddhist Peace that's right. And BPF so has a very strong yeah, presence mm -hmm. in the conference that Michael Lerner is doing this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, it, um, you know, I, I, I think it did come to, uh, that uh, Dharma did come to Japan in the samurai time. Mm -hmm. and, but I think it comes to cultures, uh, I think the history of the Dharma and all the lineages is that it comes to a culture where there is a certain uh, context that it takes root in. But as the culture changes, it changes it. Not only takes on the contour of the culture that it finds, but as that culture changes, <coughs> it continues to change. It's really um, a, a living process, I think. When you think about how many women are teaching now, in, uh, not, not only in this lineage, but in the... Yeah. In, um, in, in Zen tradition. And Tibetan. And Tibetan. And uh, uh, the Theravada tradition has not been a particularly, well, because the teachers have generally been monks, uh, the, the teachers have not generally been women. So. But, but Vipassana was pretty much brought here by Westerners, so. It was. We started at a different place, I think. It was, and I think... Uh, uh, and, and Sharon talks about how they sat down initially in, what, 76, and said, how are we going to bring this to mm. Westerners like ourselves? Right. And, uh, and, and really decided not to bring a lot of the forms. Right, and I am actually the... I think of, I th I think of myself as being in the first generation of homegrown Vipassana teachers, because although I have met many of the Western teachers, uh, they've come here. Or I, actually, the ones that I've sat with, I've sat with in the United States. Uh, but my, my teachers are primarily, are, are, I think of three people as being my primary teachers, and they're the same three people that founded IMS. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, all Westerners, all younger than I am, and uh, all of, but all of them went to Asia to study. So as they went, they took, they, they studied, they came back and they brought what what had been most useful for them, mm -hmm. and transmitted it here, so that uh, we now have you know second generation, third generation people coming along. But um, you know, it used to be in uh, we used to have these conferences of uh, Western Buddhist teachers. We still do every couple of years. All the lineages represented, um, and in the beginning, in the first conferences. The, one of the uh, uh, one of the, the, like the theme of the conference would be how much do we have to keep of uh, the form in order to be doing the true blue flame of the Dharma, and it seemed like a very important topic to discuss. And uh, I was thinking about this about women teaching Zen, and one of my friends talking, who's a Zen teacher, talking about. She said, "Look, I have a different figure. I cannot sit down in a ninth-century court kimono." It just doesn't work <laughs> for my body. <laughs> what will I do? You know, th and does teaching Zen require putting on a ninth-century cord kimono? So th that seemed to be such an important question through that whole conference about uh, what if we don't keep this form or that form? Will, will it retain? Will we Americanize it too much? Will we psychologize it too much? 
I actually think it was just talking. I don't know that we could, it, it, it became what it became because by the next conference, three years later, we didn't decide, okay, let's do this and this and this and this, okay. It just became what it became. By the next conference, three years later, it was a done deal. We had another question to think about, <laughs> and we, it didn't even come up. So I think that's what's happened over the centuries is it comes. It's a very, the central idea that, uh, that there is the liberation from suffering through the purification of habits of mind and heart. And that remains always true. And then the dharma continues. I see that it is 11 o'clock. I know many people will have to leave. I am sorry about that. I had a great time. I oh, did too. You're such a good storyteller. <laughs> 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 so th they are wonderful, aren't they? they They're wonderful. Certainly. What I listeners? To, yeah. I get oh. to do this every Wednesday. This <laughs> is great. So um, well, we should mention that I. So there are some of these books out yeah. in the hallway, yeah. and, and you're going to go. And, and I'll go. And if you'd like me to sign it, I happily visit, sign it. You can visit. Yeah. You can sign books. You can shop. Um, <laughs> we don't have to rush out of the hallway. Uh, Twenty percent <laughs> off. Oh, in honor. Uh, not, book, right? not books. Oh. Not books. All this paraphernalia out here. <laughs> <laughs> in honor of the celebration. This is the celebration month of Jack Cornfield's 60th birthday. So, mm. the bookstore. Twenty percent off. Um, I'll see you next week. Uh, we we'll, we'll talk further with Shoshana about Kansas Let's City. talk about it. Uh, we have half a dozen people who raised we hands. We did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had about half a dozen people. Uh, on Southwest Air, it'd be very inexpensive. <laughs> we'll we'll charter a flight if we get enough people. Southwest Air goes to Kansas City. I know that. Uh, all right, let's sit for a minute. I actually cannot stay today. Sometimes people want to visit with me today. I cannot stay, but Sandy can stay. So I'm telling mm -hmm. you goodbye yes, before because well, I'm going to zoom you, myself you. straight out. Thank Please you. come back. Please stay in touch. Okay. I will. Oh. <laughs> and I loved your book, by the way. Oh, thank I you. I loved the book. It Which was one? this last yeah. one, uh, uh, the, the the most recent one, the Dancing in the Dharma. The pink one. I've read most <laughs> of them before, but. Um, not the colon cancer one, which I'd like to read. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go after that one. But uh, I read this one, and you know, Ruth is just so Ruth. You know, if you think about, there has never been, you know, there will never be another. There will never Ruth. be another, and there never was before. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true of each of us, you know. But it's, it's more true. It's more true of her. Nobody ever made a Ruth. <laughs> But uh, Sharon Salzberg said when she was first teaching at IMS, they all were all referring to her as the Zsa, Zsa Gabor of the Dharma. <laughs> uh, because of the, the because flowing, the, the flowing, accent. yeah, and Dollars. the accent and the <laughs> flowing <laughs> robes and the scarves. And well, you know, but the first I only sat with her on retreat once, and you know, she's tough. She and, is tough, and yeah. I, you know, and she, her pedagogy is so much different from mine. I had like a running comment going in my mind. I wouldn't do it like that. I wouldn't do it. I would never teach like that. That's so not my <laughs> And halfway through the week, I, she had done something else outrageous. And I was sitting in the middle of a field. And I looked around. I said, this whole room full of people looks completely happy. Uh, and I so got that I am responsible, the second noble truth, I am responsible for my own suffering because of the habits of my own mind. It was I who had turned that eyes. In a backwards <laughs> way, Ruth taught me that second noble truth better than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
And I've come to appreciate her so enormously. And I passed her one day. I was walking at that retreat center. Uh, it was a bleak and dismal retreat center in Southern California. I was walking along. And she went by me on a trail a little bit higher up, walking along with uh, her little dog. She's always got a funny dog. Little dog. Little yeah. dog. And her, long, and her <laughs> long skirts, you know, swishing in the leaves and the dust, and her funny hat looked like old Mother Hubbard. And I looked up, and who knows what thought I had. Uh, we leave that aside. Who knows what thought I had about her, but she swished by. And suddenly, I had this absolutely clear feeling that at some point, I was going to be an old woman walking in woods, back and forth, teaching. And this was way in the early days Whoa. of my day. And I thought to myself, and I probably thought some you know, uncharitable thought about her, uh, her outfit or something <laughs> or other, or the, or the teaching style. And I thought this whole big thing, and then I thought, someday I'm going to be a little old woman walking in the woods teaching Dharma. <laughs> so I'm eternally grateful. To this her. is why we need these. Why we need these people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody. All right, take a breath. In honor of Ruth Dennison, may the merit that we acquire by coming together and telling stories and teaching each other and being interested and opening our minds and opening our hearts by being colleagues and friends to each other. May the merit that we acquire be offered completely without restraint for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering. May this be a world of peace with people with hearts of peace in it. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 20, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.